So continuing in our series in the Gospel of Luke this morning and coming to a very famous, well-known passage in the Gospel of Luke as well as in the other Gospels as well, Peter denying our Lord. So Luke 22, and we'll begin reading with verse 54 through verse 65. Luke 22, verse 54. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You are also one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. This is the word of the Lord, and let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we now uh, turn our attention toward your word and this scene that can be troubling for us, I pray that you would help us. Lord, help us to recall your word, remember your promises. And Father, I pray that as we ponder your word this morning, that you would build up our faith, or for those who came in here this morning without faith in Christ, that they would come to know him and know that his word is true, and they can have eternal life through faith in him. We pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. Well, it is vital for every Christian to have a sure and solid hope that everything the Lord has said will prove true. Uh, believers must have the settled conviction that everything we read in the word of the Lord can be trusted. We must believe that every prophecy of Jesus either has happened or most certainly will happen. That was one of Luke's goals for his readers when he wrote his gospel. Luke wanted his, his readers to have certainty about the word of the Lord, for he knew that, that life depended upon it. Not just life, but eternal life. And so let's recall what, what Luke had said at the very beginning of, of his book, 
Uh, I want to look back at chapter 1 of Luke's Gospel in your Bibles, the very beginning, verses 1 through 4. Here's how he introduces his book. Verse 1 of chapter 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know, I'm sorry, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. That you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now, we don't know much about this man, Theophilus, that Luke uh, appears to be writing uh, the book for or addressing here at the beginning, but we do know that he had been taught the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now Luke wanted him and all of those who read his book to have certainty about what we have been taught concerning Jesus. When it comes to trusting the Bible and what God says, we must have certainty. That, that was Luke's great concern. And so I mentioned this at the beginning uh, of our message this morning because Luke's account of the trial of Jesus is a little different from the other gospel accounts. Uh, Luke has a purpose in organizing the material in the way that he does for us here. For example, Luke um, uh, puts the focus on Peter uh, before the trial of Jesus, whereas the other uh, gospels focus on the trial uh, focus on the trial before uh, telling us about Peter's denials. And in Luke's account of, of Peter's failures, Luke includes something that no other gospel writer includes. That is the look. The look that Jesus gives Peter in verse 61. Which, as Luke reports, it, it, it triggers Peter to then remember the word of the Lord. And then later on in verses 63 through, through 65, Luke does not include as much detail uh, with the soldiers mocking of, of Jesus here and beating of Jesus. Um, but he does put an emphasis right in the middle there on the cruel mocker's insistence Verse 64, that Jesus prophesy, prophesy, they say. Jesus was known as a prophet. So they are mocking him. They're playing this, this cruel game uh, to have him prove for them his ability to prophesy. So in, in, in both scenes here that we're looking at this morning, Jesus doesn't say any words. He doesn't speak at all. Um, and yet, what Jesus has said is still the main theme of what we're seeing here. Luke's goal, it seems, in, in, in how he puts this together is to show us the trustworthiness of what Jesus has said. That was his goal for the whole gospel, and we will see as we work through this passage that, that even when it seemed like everything was going terribly wrong, for Jesus and his people, that we can still trust his word. We can still trust what he has said. 
Therefore, when you find yourself in the midst of some very hard things, well, you can still have certainty that the word of the Lord will prove true. You can depend upon what Christ has said. Therefore, you can have hope. So our main theme then is that it is both humbling and wonderfully hopeful that the word of the Lord will always prove true. Our passage is uh, structured under uh, three headings uh, this morning, which, which show us the main theme of the certainty of the word of the Lord here in this passage. So first, disciples must take heed to the word of the Lord, lest we fall. We must take heed to the word of the Lord, lest we fall, verses 54 through 60 here. Uh, focus on, on Peter's denials. Uh, remarkably, we have recorded not just in this gospel, but in all four of the gospels, in Matthew and Mark, Luke and John, we have this play-by-play description of possibly Peter's worst moment as a disciple of Jesus. Now, there are other moments. Uh, The Apostle Paul, in particular, in Galatians chapter 2, also records for us another embarrassing failure that Peter had a few years after this, but this is without a doubt his, his worst moment, his worst day. And we live in a society where the worst moments that people have on their worst days are regularly publicized in newspapers, on news reports, and of course all over the place on social media. But thankfully, for many of us, when we really mess up, when we really have very embarrassing moments, we can rest assured that hardly anybody will ever find out unless, of course, we we tell them about it. Well, here... Here was the most prominent leader among the apostles, one of the great leaders of the early church, having his worst moment on his worst day recorded for us in all four of the Gospels for all who came after to see and to be aware of. Which should give us confidence that the Gospels are reliable accounts of true events. They were not just made up by the leaders of some early religious movement, for if they were, well, they most certainly would not have included this embarrassing story of one of their most well-known leaders, unless, of course, it's true. So therefore, we, we can trust what the Gospels say about the events surrounding Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That's one reason that we can have certainty in God's Word. And uh, as we pick it up here at verse 54, Jesus was following the officers, uh, who, or uh, Peter was following the, the, the officers who took Jesus into their custody and led him to the house of the high priest in Jerusalem in the middle of the night. Uh, Luke expects us to recall that earlier in the evening at the Passover meal, Peter had asserted his loyalty to Jesus by saying, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and even to death. He said that back in verse, uh, verse 33. And here initially it seems like Peter might be displaying that courage that he boasted he had. For he doesn't abandon Jesus. He follows him. He follows the Lord, perhaps maybe biding his time, you know, waiting to see what will happen. But then Luke gives us a clue in verse 55 that maybe things 
really aren't all that right for Peter. For he tells us here in verse 55 that Peter sat down among them. He sat down among them by this fire that they had started. Now, the nights can sure get, get cold in Israel um, in the spring, so it was good to have a fire to get close to, but, but who were the folks that Peter sat down among? What group of people was he trying to include himself in here? Again, look at verses 54 or 55. Then, then they seized him, that is Jesus, they seized Jesus, and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. So Luke is telling us that Peter was, was hanging out with the very same group of people who had seized Jesus, who had brought Jesus to the high priest's house, Peter sat down among them. He's with them. Well, it didn't take long for someone in that group to notice him. And Luke tells us it wasn't one of the officers or the guards, it was a servant girl. And the, and the denials then get worse after the servant girl. Once you tell a lie and, and you are confronted again with the same thing, well, you only have one of two choices. You can admit that you told a lie originally and confess what you did, confess your sin, or, well, you have to lie again. You have to keep lying. You have to keep that story up. And so that's what Peter does. Not once, but two more times. And the third time he was accused of being one of the disciples, it's especially clear that the crowd did not believe his lies. He had to be one of the disciples. He had to be among, among them because his Galilean accent gave him away. I guess the Galileans had a particular accent, maybe, you know, as people from, from the southern United States might have, or the east, one of the two coasts, they might have this, this, this accent. They, they knew that he was one of them because that's where they were from, and that he didn't belong among them, among this group around the fire. He was an outsider who had to be one of Jesus' disciples, for they were all from Galilee, except for Judas Iscariot. So one important lesson that we ought to learn, and I would presume that some of us in here have probably learned this lesson by experience once or twice, is that no matter how hard we try, true disciples can never just blend in to the crowd, can never just blend in to the worldly crowd. We can never just try to, to go among them and not be noticed as being different. We, 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 we may try, especially in this current cultural climate, to just blend in and not let it be known that we follow Christ, but sooner or later, they're going to figure it out. They're going to notice. And we'll be faced with a similar situation to what Peter faced here. And if our goal is to continue to blend into the crowd, well, we'll either have to lie and deny Christ, like Peter does, or just keep our heads down and not say anything. Just stay quiet about that. Right after I, I finished college, I moved to Des Moines, Iowa to serve a church uh, part-time. It was a part-time position at the church as, as their youth minister and to help pay the rent 
I took another part-time job for a moving company. And one Saturday, uh, I was assigned to go with a, a crew of, of three other guys uh, to finish a move in a place that was a couple of hours outside of the city. After we uh, uh, finished that job, we were all in the truck on the way back to Des Moines, and one of the guys, it's a Saturday, it's a weekend, one of the guys broke out some marijuana and offered it to the rest of us. The other guys you know, gladly uh, took some, and, and I politely declined. And the driver of the truck just looked at me in shock and said, what, what's wrong with you? You don't want to party? And then another guy who I had worked with before told him, no, man, he's a pastor. He don't smoke weed because he's a pastor. So then for the rest of that two-hour ride back to the city, the guys grilled me with questions, challenging me if I really believed and did all the crazy stuff that they had heard that Christians believed and did. And let me tell you, there's no place to hide in a cab of a semi-truck with three other guys. You can't just blend in into that crowd. Peter failed here because he tried to blend in. Tried to blend in among them. You just can't do it if you're a disciple. And there's another reason why Peter failed, and, that, and, and also why we all fall when faced with temptations. That is, he failed to heed the word of the Lord. He did not take Jesus' word seriously. Remember that, that Jesus had warned Peter that Satan had demanded to, to have him. He said, Satan's demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, back in verse 31. So there's this real spiritual battle going on here. Satan demands to have the disciples. Disciples have a very real enemy who wants to destroy our faith, who wants to tear us away from the Lord, and separate us from each other. And Jesus then commanded Peter and the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane to pray that you may not enter temptation. He commanded them twice in verse 40 and verse 46. Pray that you may not enter temptation. But instead of praying, all we saw Peter, Peter do in response to Jesus' word was sleep. Therefore, when Peter's faced here with temptation, that Jesus had just warned him was coming, he was very ill-prepared for it. He did not heed the word of the Lord. So, brothers and sisters, let this be a warning to us. One of the main reasons why Peter's fall is included in all four Gospels is as a warning to us. 1 Corinthians 10, 11, and 12 says, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. So let us take heed. Let us take heed to the word of the Lord. That is, let us take it seriously. Let's really live like disciples, like we believe what his word says about our sin, about temptation, about his promises. 
Let's believe what the Lord says and adjust our lives according to what his word says. Second, secondly here, uh, verses six, 61 and 62, when disciples fall, there is a way back through remembering and trusting the word of the Lord. Verse 61 and 62. Uh, genuine disciples are often able to, to look back upon lives and, and see themselves when, when they were at their lowest point and then give thanks to God for it. For it is often when we are at our lowest points, when we are at our worst, that the Lord meets us there with his mercy and transforms our lives. So this may have been that moment for Peter, at, at least the beginning of his transformation. I would venture to say that Peter looked back on this moment often with thanksgiving, for he was humbled and he experienced the Lord's transforming grace through remembering and trusting the word of the Lord. Uh, as Peter was uh, denying that he knew the Lord Jesus for the third time, and we are told he did this with curses in other accounts, uh, Luke tells us the rooster crowed. That's when the rooster crowed. At that moment, the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and this, of course, means that Peter was denying the Lord in his presence. He was there. And here, either through a window of the house that uh, Jesus was in, or while Jesus was, was being moved outside in, in the courtyard, it's not clear where he was exactly. Jesus looked at Peter, and Peter knew. Peter knew. At that moment, Peter knew that Jesus knew what he had done. We like, to, we like to know, of course, what sort of look this was that Jesus gave him. You know, what, what facial expression did Peter see Jesus make uh, to him? Did Jesus look upset? Was it a look um, that said to Peter, I told you so? Was it a look of judgment? Or was this a look of mercy? and compassion. Well, Luke isn't interested in, in describing for us what, what kind of look it was. He just wants us to know the effect that this look had on Peter. Look again, verse 61. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. When Peter saw Jesus look at him, it immediately reminded him of what the Lord had said. Back in verses 31 through 34, Jesus had told Peter that the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And Peter had just heard that rooster crow immediately after he denied knowing Jesus for the third time. And at that moment, Peter realized that Jesus' word had just proven true. He had said this would happen, and it did, exactly as, it, as he said it would happen. But the Lord had warned him that Satan was after him, and Peter hadn't taken that warning seriously, and now 
this look that Jesus gave him humble because he wasn't as strong as he thought he was. Maybe Peter also remembered what, what Jesus had said about the Pharisee and the tax collector many days before. You know, that Pharisee and the tax collector in, in, in that parable, uh, they both went to the temple to pray, and Luke uh, records that parable for us in verses 9 through 14 of, of uh, chapter 18, and in that story, um, the Pharisee stands in the temple and prays, thanking God that he is not like other men, you know, that he's better than other men, in fact, especially better here than this tax collector that's come into the temple as well to pray. But the tax collector, on the other hand, just humbly confesses his sin and admits his great need. He says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Well, maybe Peter recalled Jesus' words in that parable and realized that he was indeed that Pharisee. He was that Pharisee, you know, boasting that he was not like other men, boasting that he was stronger than the other disciples, that, that, that he'd rather die than deny Jesus. He would go to prison, he would go to death, but he would never deny Jesus. But now he realized, of course, that he was actually just like the tax collector, that he was a lowly, wretched sinner who was in desperate need of mercy. Maybe this moment also reminded him of when he first met Jesus. When the Lord joined him in that fishing boat and told him to put out a little from shore so he could teach, and Jesus sat there listening to him teach, and then, and then, and then the Lord told Peter, why don't you go out a little ways and cast your, your, your net in the lake for a catch? Well, of course, Peter and the other fishermen had been fishing all night long, hadn't caught one single fish, and said, but, but he said, but since you told me, O Lord, I, I will do this, and he does this, and of course his net filled up with so many fish they couldn't even reel it back into the boat, and at that moment, Jesus fell, or Peter fell on his knees before Jesus and confessed, part from me, for I am a sinful man. Peter's remembrance of the word of the Lord humbled him. You could say it broke him. James tells us in chapter 1 of his letter that the word of the Lord is like a mirror showing us who we really are. Peter saw who he really was as he remembered the word of the Lord here. He knew he was a sinner. He knew he was a liar. He knew he had boasted that, that, that he was strong, but he was weak. He knew he had failed. He knew he hadn't taken the Lord's warning seriously, and this humbled him to the dust. He was a broken man. So in sorrow for his sin and guilt, he went out of that courtyard. He wept bitterly, and this was the beginning of Peter's repentance. This was the beginning of his return. And I wonder, have you had a similar experience? When you have been confronted with your sin, when you have realized that you are an awful, wretched, guilty sinner before a holy and righteous God. That you are exposed before his all-seeing eye. That there is nothing you can do to make up for your sin before this holy God. And the word of the Lord, if you take it seriously, will lead you back 
will lead you to those moments and will lead you back by God's grace. That's what happened to Peter. For if he remembered in this moment what the Lord had said to him about Satan wanting to sift him like wheat, that he would deny the Lord three times, well then Peter also would have remembered what the Lord said about his turning. That's again back in verses 31 and 32. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter realized here that if Jesus had been exactly right about his denials, then Jesus' word would also be exactly right about his return. Peter realized that, that above everything else, he could trust the word of the Lord, that it would always prove true. And the Lord had said he had prayed for Peter and that Peter would return again and be in a place where he could strengthen his brother disciples who by now had all deserted Jesus themselves. So remembering the word of the Lord is a very important discipline for Jesus' followers. We must daily seek to prepare ourselves for moments like this, for moments like what Peter had, when our faith will be put to the test, when we face temptation, or when, when we are humbled after great failures and fall into sin, we must remember what the word of the Lord says about our sin, which will humble us, but remember also what it says about grace, which will lead us then back to Jesus. And here's a wonderful um, word from the Lord that Peter records for us in his letter, First uh, Peter chapter 5. And this would be just the kind of word for us to remember when we are under conviction of our sin. <clears throat> Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. Humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Only the proud refuse to confess their sin. But the humble will gladly confess their sin. And he goes on, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And lastly, we see, though some will mock and hate it, the word of the Lord will always prove to be trustworthy. Uh, verses 63 through 65. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy who it is that struck you. Who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Now, in the previous scene uh, of Peter in the courtyard denying the Lord, we saw how, how fear, fear will often lead us into sin in ways like lying uh, and avoiding the truth and pretending to be someone that we are not. Maybe you have experienced such fear and you've responded in similar ways to what Peter uh, did here. I know that I have. When we are afraid, we are vulnerable to temptation. And that's one of the reasons we see the Lord commanding us in the Bible to fear not, 
fear not. And now in verses 63 through 65, we see overwhelmingly that it is the hate with which the men who were holding Jesus displayed uh, toward him. It is a disturbing image for us, revealing how much sinful humanity hates God. These men who were beating Jesus, they're not just beating him, but mocking him, it says. And the, the Greek word that Luke uses here for mocking literally means to dance around someone. And used in, in this context, it points to making a fool out of someone by torture. They had absolutely no respect for Jesus or for human life. They, they poured out their hate on him through violence and ridiculing him with their words. The other Gospels are even more descriptive than, than, than Luke was here about what happens, but what Luke focuses on is, is how the men use what they had heard about Jesus being a prophet as the basis for their mockery. They put a blindfold on Jesus so he couldn't see, and it was probably pretty dark there, you know, in the middle of the night as well. And then one of the men, you know, one of the time, would, would, would hit Jesus in the head, and it's believed that they didn't just use their fist, but they probably also used a club. They'd strike him with it, and, and they would demand then that Jesus prophesy which one of them hit him. And if he didn't respond, then they'd just do it again. And what's ironic about this is that for Luke's readers, for us, well, we have just read about how Jesus' most recent prophecies that he made at the Passover meal were all fulfilled to the letter. He had prophesied that one of the 12 apostles would betray him, and Judas had done that when he led his enemies right to Jesus on the Mount of Olives. The Lord had also prophesied that Peter would deny him three times before the rooster crowed, and that too had just been fulfilled to the very letter of what he said. And what's even more ironic is that even as these ruthless men mock Jesus as a phony prophet, well, they're actually fulfilling one of Jesus' prophecies by their very actions. Back in uh, chapter 18, verses 32 and, th and 33, Jesus had told his disciples that he would be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And that is what was happening right here as they're mocking him for being a false prophet. This is a dark and an ugly scene. But even in the midst of this ugliness, we've been reminded of the faithfulness of the word of the Lord. If Christ's word was trustworthy regarding what was concerning, or what, what, what was occurring with Peter's fall, as well as with Christ's suffering here, well then, it will be trustworthy with everything else he said. As believers, we can have hope. We can have solid hope about everything Jesus has said. And here's just a few examples for you of what he has said for you to put your hope in this morning. In John 6, 37, Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Or John 10, 27 through 28, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. 
I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. And in John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. In John 14, 3, our Lord also said, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Those are words for every disciple to know, to remember, to trust, especially on some of the worst days of our life. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say? Then to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus hath fled. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful. We're so grateful for your word, for your promises. And I pray that each one of us here, that we would put our hope firmly in those promises. I pray, Lord, for those this morning, maybe they have not trusted what you have said. They have not submitted to your word. They have not repented of their sin. Lord, I pray that this morning that they would come to understand that in their sin they are under your wrath, but they can take refuge in Jesus. They can flee to Jesus and find hope and forgiveness and eternal life in what you have said. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.